0: So, this evening, I'd like to continue exploring the theme of these ten skillful qualities of heart and mind that are known as the ten parami. And last week, I was building on Ajahn Suchito's metaphor that the parami offer us ways to cross life's floods, in other words, get through life's challenges. And I suggested that the parami are very useful qualities to have in our emergency grab bag, that emergency grab bag that we pick up to get through crises. And they are also qualities that are strengthened in crises if we can consciously turn towards them, recognize how to do that. So first, it's helpful to know what are these 10 qualities. And last week, I played with you to see if any of you could remember what they were. And just the repetition might help them stick a little. So let's see again. Can you remember in order? Hopefully, you at least remember the first one from last week. Yes, anybody? Generosity. Generosity, very good. Thank you. Next one. Ethical conduct, great. Third one. Patience. No, that's later. It's probably the least popular one for a lot of people. Oh, renunciation, renunciation. <laughs> yes, very good. <laughs> that brought it to mind. And then the fourth one begins with W. Wisdom. And then you said energy. And then someone said patience. Then... Begins with T. Equanimity is always last as a clue. <laughs> so after patience, we have one beginning with T. No. no. Truthfulness. Thank you. Yes. And then resolve. Close. Resolve. Determination. And then, not quite, one more. <laughs> one more before equanimity. Kindness. kindness. Who said kindness? Yes, good. So, okay, generosity, ethical integrity, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, and determination. Kindness or metta, and then equanimity. So, those are the ten. And as you get familiar with them, it can be an interesting practice at the end of the day just to just go through and reflect which of them came up during the day, which ones got strengthened, and which ones might need a little bit more attention, a little bit more cultivation. So as we work through this, I'd like to move on to the second of these paramina, which is uh, the Pali word of sila, sila. Uh, often translated as morality, but I prefer to translate it as ethical integrity or ethical conduct. Because for many people, the word morality can have some baggage, we could say. I'll come back to that in a moment, but just to say that the foundation of this parami is really the foundation of the whole of this path. It's grounded in our commitment to not harming not harming others, not harming ourselves. And as you know, the Buddha's whole path of practice is about overcoming suffering, freeing ourselves from suffering. So it makes sense that if we're serious about that goal, we want to establish a strong foundation, a strong commitment to not harming ourselves or others as best we can. So I think many of you have been on retreat, you're familiar In a retreat, we traditionally open the retreat by making a formal commitment to what are known as the five training precepts. And these are the commitment to refrain from killing living beings, to refrain from taking what's not freely offered, in other words, not stealing, to refrain from sexual misconduct, which means not using our sexual energy in ways that are harmful, to refrain from telling lies and speaking harshly or maliciously, and then lastly, to refrain from misusing intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. So these are five pretty basic approaches to Sila, and they're trainings, not commandments. So they're things we take on voluntarily to explore in the context of our lives. So that's a very brief snapshot, snapshot of what is meant by Sila to begin with. But I wanted to just acknowledge that for me, when I was first coming into contact with these teachings, this whole arena was something I felt pretty uncomfortable with. It touched some very deep conditioning, societal conditioning, family conditioning, personal conditioning, that I wasn't really very aware of. And later on, I started to appreciate the teachings on Silo precisely because of that, because they gave me a kind of lens to help me see some really unconscious assumptions that I hadn't been aware that I was carrying. So before we go any further, I thought just to hear from any of you, when you what's your first response when you hear talking about this theme of ethics or morality? Do you have a sense of how do you respond? Do you leap up with delight or do you pull back a little bit or are you like, oh, whatever? Any any thoughts or reactions? I like it. You like it? Yeah. What do you like about it? It just feels like, ooh. Yeah, it's like a, ooh, it yeah. yes. This morality, is like, ooh. Yeah. yeah, so morality is, ooh, and ethics is, all. yeah. What's the, what, what's the difference there? Do you have a sense? Morality feels very judgmental. Very yes. Judgmental. Judging. judging. It feels like a, you make know, can choose. Yeah, Maybe. great. So ethics is more opening and choo- choosing. Morality feels more closed down, and yeah. Anyone else? You yes, see? Sort it- of Yeah. And medicine. I mean, we, we have to because yeah. we're advancing so fast. Yeah. And technology, we've got these questions that are all ethical about what do we do? Do we keep prolonging life? Do we do this? Do we do that? Yeah. There are all things that we need to think about, but we don't really teach it in schools, so and yeah. there doesn't appear to be much dialogue. About. Yeah. So you're pointing to a big gap in our society, actually, that we don't have forums. It's kind of just been sidelined. Maybe as we've moved away from mainstream religion, it's all that we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater and there's nowhere, like you say, these are really crucial things that we could be exploring, but where do we do that? It's not taught in schools the way it is. You said in Europe they teach it in schools? Great. Another is really I hear ethics and
1: automatically
0: health ethics. Health, right. I mean, the only things I've ever heard of ethics come from a Christian culture. Mm-hmm. And I find that really interesting because if I think I'm quite an ethical person. I like to think I am. Um, but, you know, when I hear the term ethics, I just, you, know, you have to stop and think, on. Now, how do I apply that into my own life? Yes, It's really easy to apply it on a tertiary level to people out there, sort of. Right. How do I apply it into my, into my heart and live mm-hmm. an ethical lifestyle? Great, yes, that's really the living question and that's part of what we'll be exploring tonight. So, thank you. I just wanted to get a quick snapshot there because often when I talk about ethics, people express maybe some discomfort or unease or maybe they don't express it, but I can still feel a little bit of a tension in the room sometimes. And again, it's because I think it touches deep conditioning, and we don't have these opportunities to explore it. So this evening, instead of um, zooming into the details of the five training precepts, I thought just to stay on the level of an overview and to highlight some of the significant differences between Buddhist ethics and I think the kind of ethics that most of us grew up with that are prevalent in mainstream dominant society, and are probably, you could say, informed by Judeo-Christian ethics. Even if we weren't brought up in religious traditions, that's kind of the default. And I wanted to bring awareness to those differences because, for me, they were really illuminating and freeing when I started to understand that. And it really helped me to approach this topic in a way that was as free from self-judgment as possible. Okay, so what are some of the main differences between what I'll, I'll just say Western ethics for shorthand and Buddhist ethics? Maybe the first biggest one is that in Buddhism, there's no God. So there's no higher authority who's looking down and judging us. There's no external figure who's watching our every move and eventually assessing whether we go to heaven or hell when we die. So rather than having someone out there be the moral arbiter, what's radical in Buddhism is that we ourselves are the ones who are making those assessments. It's up to us, the onus is on us to understand whether what we're doing is skillful or unskillful, whether it's leading to harm or leading to happiness. Now, of course, we have the five training precepts as a framework, (laughs) and they're intended to keep us... They're intended to keep us safe from maybe the more intense forms of harm that we can do. But there's a lot of wiggle room. And at times, depending on circumstances, it's not always so clear what is the most ethical response in the middle of life's complexities. So I think I've shared with some of you before, when I first was exploring these teachings, I was living in Melbourne and I used to go to a Buddhist group in a different tradition and I'd come along and I'd bring these questions that were really complex and perplexing to me and I'd try to get answers from the teachers and they'd say, well, you know, it depends. You could see it like this or you could see it like that or maybe you want to think it. No, it doesn't necessarily. And I'd think, what is wrong with these people? (laughs) They must be beginners because they just never give me a straight answer. They're just wiggling and wriggling. I just wanted them to say, do this, do that, don't do that, tick here, yes, you're right, but it's not that simple. And later on I came to appreciate that only we can know all the complex circumstances of our lives and only we can know all the different motivations in our hearts and minds. And actually that's crucial in terms of Buddhist ethics. In mainstream ethics we tend to Judge whether an action was skillful or not by the result, right? By what happened after we did something. But in Buddhist ethics, what's crucially important is the quality of the heart and mind, the motivation or intention that we did that action with. And that's what's important because we can't actually control the circumstances. We can have some control over how we react, how we respond, what we do. But once once we've done that, we don't have a control what how the other person reacts or responds. So just as an example from my own life, a few years ago when I was managing a retreat centre in Australia in the Blue Mountains, when I first got there, the kitchen had a mouse problem. And, you know, we were trying to be ethical, so we got those traps that don't kill the mice I think they're called catch-and-release traps. And they were like little plastic tunnels that tipped. And so I came in one morning and saw that the, uh, the trap had gone off. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to release this mouse. And it was the middle of winter, so it was really cold. It was in the Blue Mountains. It got below zero. And so I carefully picked up this trap and I shook it, and there was no movement whatsoever. And I thought, oh, of course, the mouse probably froze to death overnight because it's so cold in the kitchen and oh, didn't want to kill it, but it looks like I've killed it. Okay. And then I thought, well, I'm going to have to get rid of its body. So I went out into a, towards a stand of trees and I thought, I'll just put its body in the leaf litter and leave it. So as I was going there, I saw a currawong sitting in the tree. And if you're not familiar with those currawongs, they're these pretty big birds like giant crows or magpies. And they're black and white, and they have a pretty intense energy and a pretty serious beak. And I only half noticed it, but I went to the leaf litter and I opened the trap, and the mouse shot at my leg. I was like, oh, it's alive! Hooray! I was so happy. And then the very next moment, the karawang (laughs) came down, picked up the mouse and flew off with it. And the last image of that mouse was it screaming and wriggling in the beak of the karawang. And I staggered back into the kitchen. I was like, I'd gone from elation to despair to grief to all in like, and it was my birthday. (laughs) And if I hadn't had the Buddhist ethical framework, I probably would have spent the rest of the day berating myself for having killed this mouse and made it die a horrible death, etc., etc., But because I understood my intention all the way through that was really to care for the mouse and not to kill it. And I couldn't control that there was a karawang there. It wasn't my fault that it ended up dying. But there was a relief that I could rest in my intention rather than the outcome, which totally wasn't what I'd wanted. So that's a pretty simple example. But In the Buddha's teachings, the second piece or third aspect is the emphasis is not on punishment for transgression, but reward for not transgressing. So instead of the carrot and the stick, instead of the stick, it's very much the carrot approach. And the Buddha over and over again emphasized the happiness that comes from living harmlessly. In fact, there's a phrase that often appears in the discourses in relation to Sila in relation to non-harming, it's the bliss of blamelessness. Now those are two words that don't often go together, but you might think even in the context of your own life. All of us here have a certain degree of freedom from massive remorse, regret, despair, self-judgment, shame. I don't can't read all your minds, I don't know all your history, but as a very general statement, you probably haven't done the worst possible things you could imagine. And there's a relative freedom, even sitting here and now, that your level of ethical conduct, maybe compared to a mythical norm, is above the norm. I'm pretty confident in saying that. And so to take that in and to appreciate that, And I want to really emphasize that, because at least again in my own experience, when I would hear teachings on ethics, my mind would immediately default to where I wasn't getting it right, where I wasn't doing it well enough, things I should be doing better, ways I'd let myself down and could easily slide into self-judgment or guilt or shame. And so it can be helpful to really reflect on all the ways that we are living more ethically, that we are living in alignment with these precepts as best we can. Because appreciating our own integrity sets up a positive feedback loop. Some of you said you were excited to hear about ethics. We can celebrate the fact that we're, for the most part, saving ourselves and others a lot of harm, a lot of pain. And this can be such a powerful antidote to that tendency to fall into blame or shame or self-judgment when we do end up acting unskillfully. In the Buddha's understanding, it's not actually skillful to wallow in self-judgment or shame or self-blame. And yet I think often we unconsciously think that we deserve to suffer if we've done something wrong. And we kind of punish ourselves. I should be suffering because I did that dreadful thing 20 years ago. And who am I to ever feel happiness when blah, blah, blah. The Buddha doesn't see that as helpful. What he advocated was a kind of a healthy remorse where we take in, we discern, yes, that was not helpful. That did cause harm. And seeing that harm that I did to myself, that I did to others, I will not do that again in future. And it helps strengthen the resolve to not repeat that pattern. And then we can let go. We've let go. We don't need to keep going back to that. So the other piece in that that's interesting, I think the difference between Buddhist and mainstream ethics is that in mainstream society, we often, especially with people who've done things that are criminally harmful, collapse their whole identity into that one action of wrongdoing. And this came up a lot when I was volunteering in a prison in the US, how often the men would say they fully accepted that they'd done something reprehensible, but now society, to for them... Society saw them as the murderer, the felon, the thief, the whatever it was. Their whole life was collapsed into that. And we do that sometimes to ourselves. And I think, again, it comes from a more um, Judeo-Christian heritage where we talk about sinners. And there's the idea that you become the things that you've done wrong. But in Buddhism, there's no such thing as a sinner. There are unskillful actions, but there's not an unskillful person. So that, maybe that sounds subtle, but for me, it's very freeing. Do you get the difference? That Yes, I can do unskillful actions. That doesn't mean I am an unskillful person. There's always room for redemption. It's not the whole of who I am. And this connects, I think, to the teachings on karma. Karma or kama, which sort of become simplified in the West and made very, actually not even simplified, but simplistic. But in the Buddha's understanding, karma means intention. And what's crucial in any action is our motivation. So like I said in the example with the mouse, my intention was not to harm the mouse, so, even though it ended up dying, I don't accrue any karma for that because I didn't deliberately feed it to the karawang, quite the opposite. So, the intention in the heart and the mind is what determines whether something creates negative or wholesome karma. And in the West, in that simplification, I think we tend to think about bad karma. We hear all the time about, oh, that was bad karma in popular culture. What we don't hear about is that we all are also creating good karma, beneficial karma. And one of the benefits of bringing awareness to this is that when karma ripens, it ripens in the field of everything that we've done. And so as an analogy for this, in the teachings they use a metaphor of putting a teaspoon of salt in a cup of water and then drinking it. If that teaspoon of salt is just in a small container, it's pretty toxic. It has a big impact. (coughs) The water will be undrinkable. So the bad karma is the salt. But if we put that salt in a lake, we won't even taste it. And the idea is that you can accumulate, create skillful karma, wholesome karma so that the bad stuff is mitigated by everything else that we've done in our lives. So again, I think it's really crucial to take in and celebrate what we're doing well, what we're doing right, because it can be empowering. It gives us agency to change our lives in a wholesome direction. So we want to reflect on the whole spectrum of how we are in the world, fully taking the good and not just fixate on the bad. And this too is a form of generosity. It links Sila back to the generosity that I spoke about last week. And in the Buddha's understanding, there's really a close connection between these two. So in the discourses, he very... Explicitly referred to sila, ethical conduct, as a gift, and he says in relation to keeping the training precepts, each one of these precepts is a gift that we offer to others and to ourselves. And so, I'll read you the la- the actual phrase in relation to just the first sutta on not killing, sorry, the first precept on not killing. language is a little old-fashioned, but I think you'll get the gist of it. It says here, a practitioner, having abandoned the destruction of life, abstains from the destruction of life. By abstaining from the destruction of life, the practitioner gives an immeasurable number of beings freedom from fear, freedom from enmity, freedom from affliction. And they themselves, in turn, enjoy immeasurable freedom from fear, from enmity and affliction. This is the first gift, a great gift, that leads to what is wished for, desired and agreeable, to one's welfare and happiness. So again, you might think, you know, just this commitment to living skillfully It's a protection for you. You don't have to live in fear of being caught out, being found out, being punished, being blamed, being shamed. But you're also offering the gift of that freedom from fear to others too. So there's a lot in what I've said so far. And I thought just to finish there, because I'd really love to hear from all of you how any of this lands and how... Any of you have been practicing with sila in your own life generally? What have been the challenges for you? And just as importantly, what have been the rewards? So I'll leave it there for now. Thank you for your attention. May we all experience the freedom from practicing sila. Thank you for listening.